Welcome to Different From The Other Kids, a weekly talk show for parents with challenging children with host Angela Sunis, a parent whose teen was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Each episode, Angela will have a discussion with an individual or professional within the mental health community. Different from the other kids, season one, a production of Marketing Maven. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Different from the Other Kids, a podcast for parents with challenging children. Welcome back. We are back with Jackie, and uh, just wanted to give a little intro. Um, did the last time as well, right off the top of my head. Jackie is an amazing human being, one of the greatest people I've ever known in my life, certainly the most inspirational, has been through Helen back in her life and has done great things with it. Um, we are here uh, talking to her as she has an unbelievable history of um, all different kinds of mental illness um, from almost every perspective you can think of, and uh, she works in the industry now. Um, and wanted to talk to her a little bit more about uh, her son and uh, how that all uh, went down uh, as far as um, when he was a kid up until maybe diagnosis and uh, what's happened to him since, Um, just to give you uh, a different perspective um, of uh, what can happen if it is that you're on your own and parenting a child and having no one to talk to. Uh, Hopefully this will um, maybe uh, make you feel less isolated and uh, maybe we can get to the point where we can actually come up with something, uh, some kind of strategy or something here so that we can uh, pass something positive along uh, before we sign off for today. So with no further ado, here is Miss Jackie. <gasps> the grapple's wild. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> um, well, I, I, I guess... Um, maybe start off with uh, talking about uh, my son, who is now 26. Um, And as we talked about before, weren't a lot of supports available. Um, And I spent most of his young years um, advocating for him within the school system and actually finding people that could even find out uh, what was wrong with him. Eventually, we were hooked up with the Tourette Syndrome Clinic, which... um, at that time, there was very little known about Tourette's, um, and we we started to, to see uh, a doctor at the clinic there. He was diagnosed with uh, Tourette's, ADHD, OCD, and on top of that, he had acquired head injury from um, the car accident when he was an infant. So how that would play out, we weren't really sure. Uh, can, can I ask you, Jack, just to describe uh, a little bit for everyone uh, what his behavior would have been, what he would have presented like at the time? Well, it, I, I always noticed from about the time he was three on, um, he seemed a little bit different in the way that he, he socialized his responses emotionally were always were uh, very extreme and not appropriate to the disappointment of a three-year-old um, and an inability to um, stay still for any length of time. Um, very, very uh, clumsy and really unhappy and always seemed to be crying and everything frustrated him 
Uh, loud music frustrated him. Um, he just did not seem, he just seemed to be always in a state of agitation. Um, then, and I, what I did start to notice that he, I mean, he just didn't seem to be able to socialize with people his own age. When he was really little, it wasn't really that noticeable. But by the time he got to be about six, it started to become more noticeable that um, he just didn't know how to socialize. He didn't read cues well. He didn't... Um, he, he was always having accidents, uh, becoming, again, very hysterical. Uh, yeah, I remember very well, Christina, in, in, in those ages, and not that, that they're the same at all, uh, but they're similar in that um, we used to call her the drama queen. Right. And it was always this histrionic behavior of, oh, my God, the world has ended because, you know, this small thing happened. And that seems to be pretty common with a lot of kids with uh, some mental illnesses. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, he didn't have any form. I mean, most young people don't have, a, a, you know, a very defined ability to self-regulate. But what was appropriate for his chronological age, he had didn't have, have the ability to self-regulate at all. And so he would appear like an untrained child or what others would, uh, you know, that didn't have any kind of understanding that he was just spoiled or wasn't, no limits were being set on him or he wasn't being trained or um, any just in general, everything was difficult for him. And I remember by the end of grade one, a very intolerant teacher uh, who really, really didn't understand him. Um, you know, he was being bullied in the, in the, uh, schoolyard. He went to a daycare in the same school. He would not be able to get from his classroom to uh, his daycare room without, you know, there would be no coat, there would be no boots, there would be not, none of the things he needed to bring with him, which he did start off with, but never ended getting up to the classroom. Um, and he just, everything was a challenge for him. And uh, he had to be watched very closely um, because he was very, very impulsive, um, more so than uh, the uh, you know kids his own age. Which something was off, and I couldn't quite you know. And he also um, started; he'd wake up in the middle of the night crying and wouldn't be able to stop, or um, he would be asleep. And when he woke up, he would cry for an hour. And it, it sometimes was to the point you were afraid for him to fall asleep because if he woke up, if he was in the car and fell asleep, woke up, there'd be at least an hour of that. And were they night terrors? Do you think? I, yeah, I think some of it was night terrors, but a lot of it was, I think, just emotional uh, deregulation oh. and inability to... Um, control his his emotions on on any level and um though he was very high functioning mm -hmm. um and there were odd things too where i remember a teacher in uh grade two had some concerns because his language uh was very advanced for his age very sophisticated and he was discussing gargoyles 
which most two-year-old uh, kids in grade two would have no idea what a gargoyle was and what it's and what it represents. And he seemed to have known those things. He things that were unusual for he just seemed to grasp in ways that other children didn't do. Not, and not that that's such a big deal, but with, based on all the other things, um, he was very um, high functioning in some areas, almost like a savant thing and then in other areas like so uh, you know social and emotional development uh just lagging behind um and causing him a great deal of of uh of pain um and he had to be supervised at all times he just couldn't manage uh at all um and, and so that became a real that became a real challenge um and though he was very, he was able to verbalize very well. Uh, he couldn't read anything, and yet he, yet he was read to every night, and he memorized books. And it wasn't until I missed a, uh, I missed a page, um, and I went to another page, and then he um, basically recited recited the page before, and then I figured it out that he didn't have a clue. Uh, how to read, and it was at that time that we sent him to a psychologist for some testing, and uh, all of the concerns we had were, um, you know, validated. And he spent probably two years, from about eight to ten, seeing a psychologist to teach him how to read uh, in private session, because the earlier, obviously, intervention, the easier. And he's, you know, uh, he was able to uh, catch up, um, and then became. But, you know, very, uh, very good at reading. But then other issues started to arise, which were uh, sensory problems, not being able to listen to loud music, not uh, being able to tolerate, um, you know, uh, sensations of clothing. Um, and then from from there, it went to things like not being able to leave my side, if, even at, you know, 11, 12 years old having to go to the bathroom and would, and though, you know, he knew it was not acceptable socially would wet himself rather than if I couldn't go up, walk up to the second floor to go and stand outside of the bathroom, he wouldn't, he wouldn't leave the room. Um, having to tuck him in at nighttime with the covers exact a certain way before he could settle, um, those sorts of things. Um, and then starting to, be terrified of being alone um, to the point where it completely, uh, you know, he was a, a prisoner in his own body and it, it, it was really quite frightening. Um, and then he was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. And that was around what time? Was he was about 11 by that time. Okay. He was about 11. Um, and then things got progressively worse. I mean, we... Then as he got older and then the social, emotional, um, wow. you know, difference between his peers, it was really evident. And so as a result, he was really bullied badly. Teachers were insensitive that, to that, which um, just destroyed his soul. And, you know, I think as all parents of children with mental health issues, that's the one thing we don't want them to do because in their recovery, um, they have to have a sense of identity because it is hard work and, it, and um, 
we don't want them to stop taking risks. And that's what happens is they stop taking risks. And it's necessary for their growth that they be able to take risks without being fearful and, um, you know, destroying someone, a young person's soul. And that's pretty much what happened. Um, you know, it was just a succession of bullying, inappropriate school programs, programs, uh, teachers that were totally insensitive, uh, refused to try and despite, you know, psychological assessments, despite letters from doctors explaining the circumstances. There has to be a willingness. Um, and it got to the point, and this probably for me was the most painful thing, is just moving to a new school in grade five and knowing he was going to another board of uh, education and the psychologist came out and saw him in his program where he'd been doing very well for the previous three years. Um, and only to be told the first day of school, um, though he had a full-time assistant to help him basically so he wouldn't be at harm's way, um, that there would be none and that I just would have to wait until they got one. Um, they did eventually get one which really didn't understand his needs. And by two months, well, two months into the program, he was, rather than going out for recess, uh, he was hiding in the bathroom in the stalls at recess crying. And it was just agonizing as a parent to know that he would sneak into the bathroom so that he wouldn't have to go out in the schoolyard. Um, and the school not really being very sensitive to that, um, it, it, it was very, very, and there it just continued, and it, it got progressively worse, just different scenarios as he got older, but all the same thing, um, because of his inability to, you know, read social cues, he was also very vulnerable, and uh, very easy to be victimized, um, and then, as a young person then, of course, he never fit in, um, a kid that was never picked for group activities, teachers that allowed kids to pick each other and, and, and not discourage that. Um, it was really, really, uh, I mean, times him coming home from school, just, you know, 12, 13 years old crying and not understanding why, you know, he didn't have any friends and why people were so mean to him. And it got worse when he got to high school. But then when he did get to high school, um, school was, you know, the kids had matured by then, so there was a less amount of bullying. And, um, but then to fit in, he got involved in drugs. And he, you know, unfortunately, uh, drugs gave him, drug use gave him friends. Um, and... It also probably gave him that way out, that ability yes. to numb the mind to the point where the pain stopped. Yes, exactly. It did exactly. It made him feel good about himself. Um, he had friends. Uh, he didn't have to deal with the terrible obsession and anxiety and, you know, trauma caused by years and years of bullying. Uh, and then... By the time he had reached 18, he refused to take all of his medications. Uh, started to get very heavily into uh, methamphetamine drugs, uh, injection using. And within a short period of time was highly addicted, uh, living on the streets, violent, uh, not on any kind of psychiatric medications, and then 
to be honest, over the last um, 10 years. Uh, he has basically lived in that state and been sober for in between for very, very short periods and lives the life of, you know, a chronically homeless, mentally ill addict um, and with very little supports available to him. And when I say supports available to him, ones that are effective for people with mental health challenges and addictions and who are chronically homeless and or that meet their needs. And this becomes a real, um, it, it's, it's very difficult as a parent because you can't allow that life, that, that you can't be, you can't be part of the, the uh, addict, despite mental health, become part of that life and get caught up in it because um, it, 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 it doesn't help anybody. And there are very little supports available uh, unless, again, you've been arrested or you are in a state of crisis and you need hospitalization. Um, so it, 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 if not for his mental health issues, I do not believe that he probably would have felt, I mean, from my perspective, the fact he hasn't killed himself um, at, I mean, he is killing himself. This is just active suicide. It, it, portraying it in his day-to-day -day life rather than doing committing it in one final act. And that, of course, I think that as a parent, it is, and it's particularly as a social worker, it's really difficult to accept the fact that you can't help your own child. Um, and it is not shameful, but it's agonizing. It's very difficult to live your day-to-day -day life. You have to separate your existing life with that life, um, knowing that, and you also have to sit and watch your child self, uh, and because they are adults, uh, self-sabotage themselves and slowly kill themselves and not be able to assist them or intervene in any way that um, can help them. At what point, I know there's um, a lot of debate over uh, how much uh, parents can, um, know about their children's um, uh, health and mental health after the age of, uh, I'm going to say it's 18, but it probably starts around 16. Yeah, it's actually 16. Um, the age, basically, um, it, like to start off with, any young person under the age of 16. Um, Thank you for making that. Yeah, it, 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 like, for instance, for children's aid to become involved. If you are under the age of 16, um, they can intervene and provide supports. But if you are 16 and you're in, in like family crisis, they will not intervene. Um, as well as that applies to, for a young person that is arrested and comes into care, um, under the Youth Justice Act, parents are to be informed uh, up to the age of 18, but uh, a youth has to give consent after the age of 16 uh, to allow their parents to be a part of their case management planning and to be um, advised of any of their medical information. That is entirely the choice of the child. So did you get 
basically ousted from his life at around the age 16? Is that when it was that you were prevented from getting involved with him? Did he do that, or was it uh, as a result of uh, him, you know, uh, going, you know, leaving the house and going to uh, the life of drugs on the street, or... How did that? How did that happen? Well, I mean, up until he was eighteen, and because he really knew how out of control he was, he always—that's one thing I have to say about my son—he always allowed me to be advocate on his behalf. Uh, to the point where, at twenty-six years old, he would like me to still do it as if he was a small child. I can't do that. Um, it's against the law. Not to mention that uh, service providers will not allow the parent to. Um, uh, basically um, be the voice for the young person. Um, That's tough. Yeah, it, it, it is very tough. Because um, it's, it, it's not like he's in his right mind to be making decisions. It's not like he actually has the ability or is, has the capacity in many cases to make, to connect these dots. Right. Right. So that that's, that's it's very difficult. Well, and that's where it becomes really, really challenging for most parents, where their young adult children have become addicted, have become involved with the criminal justice system, um, and requires psychiatric help unless uh, unless a doctor deems your again under the Mental Health Act. Um, puts them on a form one and then continues to think that your child is um, at risk, um, they can put them on another form, which just means it's an extended period of time, but it is a maximum of 30 days. And even at that, that is a, most doctors won't do it because lawyer advocate, patient advocate lawyers will come in and they will debate that, and generally it doesn't stand up. So it, it, it's really a very difficult situation. Um, and really the law clearly states that unless you're a threat directly to yourself or someone else, you cannot be held against your will and you cannot be forced into treatment. And that's a good thing, but it's also uh, it doesn't help for intervention. Um and that you might be harming yourself and doing uh, a lot of things that are very, very unhealthy. But unless you're at risk of, in, like, in the moment uh, suicide or in the moment homicide or assault of another person, that doesn't apply. So it, it becomes very, very difficult. And then it becomes even more difficult because it's sort of uh, a standard uh, awareness between people in the in community service work that if a mentally ill person with a serious addiction comes into their hospital, he will be released. They will not. They do not want to deal with the long term rehabilitation necessary for a heroin addict, a methamphetamine addict who requires detoxification, requires medical treatment, and medical detox, and then very intense therapy, and then stabilization of the mental health first before they can deal with the addiction. It's huge money, huge time, and any addict that comes in uh, with that that is presenting as uh, in a state of psychosis will be released. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. That's um that's some solid some. That's really difficult. Yes. Okay, so I would like to try and end every one of these off with something that's the least bit positive. So is there anything that you would be asking? I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry too. Um, is there anything that you can think of uh, if it was that you were going to give advice to a parent of a mentally ill young adult in trying to keep in that child's life, if only to try and give them a sounding board, if only to try and put them in the right direction, um, do you have any advice for how it is that you might go about doing that, whether they're drug addicted or, or not? Um, well, I would say uh, the one thing that you need to do, even though my son himself is in a state of constant crisis and is actually violent um, because of addiction and the mental health issues and, and has active psychosis, um, I can't physically be around him because it's dangerous, but there is some connection. My son knows how to get a hold of me. Um, and when he wants to talk to me, or uh, um, and even though I don't, I find it shocking. I find it really, really emotionally overwhelming. Um, I think giving the consistent message that when you're ready for help, I'm here and I will be here. Um, I think that's the best, I don't, I think enabling a young person by being a part of the addiction or allowing yourself to be a part of the active addiction, which also means detaching with love from them, but also consistently sending out that same message that I'll be here for you and that I love you no matter what's going on. And being able to hear the hard things about what their life uh, lifestyle as a result of mental health and addiction issues really is and not placing any judgment or trying to fix it. Um, I, I think that you can't, I, I think that that would be the advice that I would give is that just being able to that event that though you're even though you think your kids don't hear that they do hear it and they do know uh, that you love them even if they're not helping them or supporting them or what you feel is up but just by consistently letting them know that when you're ready for support I'm going to be here. Okay, Jackie. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that you were here today to share all that with us. Um, forgive Jackie and I for our giggling. Um, we are known to have. An inappropriate sense of humor at the best of times. I think that comes with the territory. I was going to say that's emotional instability from parents that are just <laughs> exhausted and tired. And if you don't, the, the expression, if you don't laugh, you'll cry. It's pretty much that. And I think probably for parents out there that are um, dealing with the constant stress, it, it can provide you with some emotional instability at times, and it's actually a relief of comfort, as crazy as that yeah. sounds, but I think that most of us, most parents in our circumstances at some point have laughed at things that are totally, it's totally not appropriate to be laughing at and finding great humor in it, because yeah. really, you, it, 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 it's, it's a stress relief. Mm -hmm. Well, there's also part of it, too, that it just is so unreal from what it is that everybody else experiences. 
right. which is you know what what I'd like to talk to you next about on the next podcast if that's okay, um, because it's it's so ridiculously out of the realm of what anybody else would experience um, that it it does strike me as funny sometimes. It's like a Saturday Night Live episode of which now actually goes on in my head all the time about regular things. Because I, I now have an offbeat sense of humor that there's nobody else that actually can get what goes on in my head. It's a, it's a scary place in there, but it is what it is as a result of what it is that we do right. every day, day right. in, day out. So it's also a coping mechanism <laughs> um, because really, yeah, it can be crazy making for yeah. lack of a really bad, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, term. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, Yes, yeah. I would agree. So if it is that you have an offbeat sense of humor and you are the parent of a child that is mentally ill, uh, yes, you are in great company. This is the way that we cope. One of the many ways in which we cope. It's probably the most positive way in which we cope. So uh, without further ado, I am going to say thank you very much, Jackie, for joining us. And thanks very much, everybody, for tuning in. Review our podcast on iTunes. This helps us spread our message. Don't forget to follow Different From The Other Kids on Facebook and Twitter. Check out our book on Amazon. And we'll see you soon on the other side. Stay amazing. And now a disclaimer. In general, I, Angela Sunis, am not a doctor, and I certainly don't play one on the internet. I am not even that well educated. I'm a parent, period. The advice from me presented on Different From The Other Kids does not replace advice received directly from a medical health professional. If you think you need help, I do recommend making an appointment with your physician or other appropriate health care provider. Thanks for listening to Different from the Other Kids, made possible with the support of Raven 5. We are Contest Marketing. You can find them online at www.raven5.com Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Different from the other kids. Season 1. A production of Marketing Maven.